a lot of people who go through divorce live with stigma. Others have to deal with the pain of having failed in what they had thought would have been their best effort in life to keep a covenant, the highest relationship between two human beings. And that in itself tells you that people who have gone through divorce, one way or the other, if not both, at least one party has gone through a lot of pain or is still going through a lot of pain. And half the time, it's very difficult to find who to cry to because the people that are close to you may be the people that totally disapprove of your, your decision to divorce. In many instances, many other people have lost close friends who simply say, I cannot associate with you after divorce. And many divorce cases have merits that either justify the stance of the people around the divorcees or not. But be that as it may, what I want to bring to our attention is that people who have divorced or people that are divorcing or people that are considering divorce are already going through a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain involved. A lot of people who divorce, at least one party in the divorce context, does not want to divorce. And in most cases, they have done what they believe would have been enough to keep their marriage intact, only to find it to be. So I want us to kick off tonight by creating an atmosphere within which we want to discuss, an atmosphere that should shape our attitudes despite our opinions. And that would, in a sense, create an open-minded approach to other people's views and stances as far as the matter of divorce is concerned. So I want us to go to the book of Matthew 22. That's where we want to start tonight. Matthew 22. We're going to read from 34 to 40. So what we will do is tonight we are going to give just perspectives on what different schools of thoughts around divorce say. And I will ask questions to you as a listener, questions that we will, as a collective tomorrow, try and answer. But tonight we want to look at what does scripture have to say? What do we understand about what it says? Our understanding, does it fit the context in which these things were said? and whether our applications of our understanding befits what the cross of Christ has done. So we in Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he has silenced the Sadducees, 
They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest or the great commandment in the law? Jesus to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these commandments all the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying to us, the law will, will propound, the law will declare forth, it will put forth the things we are supposed to do and not to do, and there will be a variety of laws from which we can derive our conduct. If you love me, you'll obey my commandment. In the same vein, for those who are divorcing, who have divorced or are considering divorce, they should also be asking themselves the same thing that what I do or what I have done, how far has it shown my love for God? And this can be asked where in foresight or in retrospect, the point is all of the law must point our behavior towards wanting to show God that we love him. In other words, before we take an action, we must also not just look at ourselves, ask, what does it do to the Father's heart? In a similar manner, the people that we are dealing with, the Bible says, deal with them as you would want to be dealt with yourself. And in this context is love. Does it mean we will not have conflict? Does it mean we will not have irreconcilable differences? Really, doesn't. If we are perfected in love, we would find a new place where the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. But since we are not at that point, we can quote from what we have written in the alternative marriage, that all relationships are workable, but not all relationships will work out. So as we engage throughout the week, you will have questions, you will hear other people's opinions. Do not allow animosity, do not allow anger and guilt and shame to dictate your engagement behavior, dictate how you, you take in the discussions. Understood, seek to understand the others and seek to walk in love in all of it. Amen. So let's pick up our discussion from the book of Deuteronomy. Ideally, for most people, the discussion would start in Malachi. But Malachi is a later context. Let's, let's start in the book of Deuteronomy, 
24. Now, these are the rules that were given to Israel through Moses. And what I'm going to try and do tonight is let's engage on what you think and we're not trying to give our stances. We are trying to say what was being said. Do we understand what was being said? In Deuteronomy 24, let's start from verse 1 to verse 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Did you hear it? So, I want us to, as we read, let's hear who's being addressed, if there's a guilty party, or if there's a, a party at fault, let's find out who's at fault, and what is the purported fault. What is this person being accused of? that warrants the termination of the marriage. Are you there? So for now, we are told that this man finds some uncleanness in her. Are you there? So now, we won't go into all that the book of Leviticus tells us. There would have been levels of uncleanness about this woman that the Bible would have dictated. Stuff like virginity and so on and so forth and, and many other things. But in the context that we are reading now, we are reading about a man who finds an uncleanness about the wife, right? And he says, and he writes her a certificate or a letter of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house, now listen, when she has what? Okay, let, let's, let's go back. Let's analyze the situation afresh. There was something that displeased this guy about this lady, right? He divorced her and gave her a divorce decree. What was the grounds of divorce? Some uncleanness. Right? So, remember, this is what Moses was told to instruct to the Israelites. I want us to process because... It's easy to jump to saying God hates divorce, full stop. That may be the case, but it is also important to look at what were the grounds of divorce in the Bible. Because you see, here, it's an instruction given to the nation 
It's not the nation themselves deciding, I'm just going to do this thing. Is that still okay? So now we find this particular ground of divorce, uncleanness. But then, another aspect of the complication of marriage arises here. It says, after he had sent her away from his house and she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. What part is there of our complication? Remarriage. So, we have experienced what? Divorce and remarriage. And we are trying to discover what was the thinking then as the pronouncements were made, what was expected of men and women if they were to be divorced. So number one, it says they were to be divorced. She was given a letter of divorce. And if she becomes and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. What do you call this now? This would have been this woman's second divorce. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Remember, tonight we are not giving stances. We're not saying, is this right or wrong? No, no, no. We are just reading what was. If interpretations have changed, we need to find out how and where and why. So this woman could be divorced twice. If the latter husband detests her. Now, we don't know what would be the grounds of detesting her too. It could be the same uncleanness. It could be something else. We don't know. We can infer from other verses in the Bible and from the history of the nation of Israel. It says, and it's, and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her as the wife? So the next thing after divorce that can terminate marriage is what? Death. Right? It says, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You heard that, eh? We heard marriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, Death, forbidding of remarrying the same person. That's what Deuteronomy tells us was the case. 
Now, when you read the, the history of Israel, Israel, remember, they, 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 they were broken into the south and the northern kingdom. They were taken to captive. Remember the stories. And then later on, they, they were restored to Jerusalem. And they migrated from Babylon with Zerubbabel, with Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember the story. And then the Bible says, in that time, there was a restoration of worship in Israel. Part of the restoration, Ezra and Nehemiah accused the Israelites of another abomination before the Lord. They say, we hear that amongst the remnants, there are those who have married foreign women. Remember the story. What did they do? Nehemiah puts it even better. He says, I pulled out their heads. Basically, I slept them around and I asked them to send them away. Basically, I asked them to divorce these ladies. Question. These ladies, were they sent away within the same context of the law that we read in Deuteronomy? Are they sent away because they are unclean? Now remember, God had already said, I forbid you to intermarry with the nations around you. So was this divorce, was this separation, however you choose to look at it, was this breaking of these marriages, was it based on uncleanness or based on the forbidding of cross-ethnical marriages? As it meant, you can apply what you want to apply. Bottom line is, they were sent away. Are you there? And so, Israel, whilst restored under the leadership of all these guys, they had rebuilt the temple, they have restored all the Passover and the feast and all the things that God had said. They backslide again, they fall back into their old ways. And now Malachi comes, he writes to a context of a nation that has now backslidden. So when you read the accusations, there's a number of accusations. God talks about, if I am a father, where is my honor? He says, you bring me bad sacrifices, blind eyes, animals, and so on and so forth. He says, can you go and give these sacrifices to your governor? So now there's a series of accusations, you know, and indictments. You're doing this. You're doing that. You give me wrong sacrifices. You priest, you dishonor me, and so on and so forth. But another 
indictment is on the fact that they come to him, they cry. God says, I don't answer your prayers. Remember, they are now sacrificing as they were before, except that now they are giving profane and forbidden sacrifices to God. So they come, they cry to him, and God says, I'm not going to listen to you. That sounds almost like what God says through the mouth of Peter, or husband, live considerably with your wives, lest your prayers be hindered. Okay, so we are in Malachi. I don't want to give a unnecessary long introductions as to the context. But in Malachi 2, Right? Perhaps what we should do is let's just read from chapter one, rather from the, the very verse one, Malachi two, so that we can give ourselves the background of the accusations, the indictment as they come to them, and what, how do we get to Verse 16. I'm reading Malachi chapter 2. I'm reading from verse 1. It says, And now this admonition is for you, priests, who's under the spotlight at this point. The priests, right? You priests, if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will, send you, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. I want to introduce something of a controversy in the context of our discussion, but I want you to think about it. I'm not trying to drive a point, but I want you to think about it. These people, God says, you have not honored my covenant. Is it the first time they have dishonored it? No. Now, I want you to think about something. Because if you think about it, honestly, it should create in you a dilemma of sorts. God is the God of covenant. He's a God-keeping, covenant-keeping God, right? But he's the God of a nation that is a covenant-breaking nation. Not once, not twice, 
But this amazing God says to them, in my anger, when you broke my covenant, I sent you away. I gave you over to captivity to your, the hands of your enemies. But yet I will remember you and I will restore you. And he restores them many times. And then he comes and he says, and I will make a new covenant with you. My question is simple. Why doesn't God, in the event of his covenant being broken, totally disown these people? He has a right. He says you have broken the covenant. Why doesn't he just say, keep that thought in your mind. It might help you later. I don't know. But where were we? Which verse? It says verse, let me take it from verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing was false found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant of Levi. You have Violated the covenant of Levi, says Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but you have shown partiality in matters of the law. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Are you hearing? So there is an outcry within the nation itself that we have broken a covenant with one another. So we've broken covenant with God. We've broken covenant with one another. We've profaned it. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Are you hearing that? What have they done? They have married foreign. So pr pretty much they have done what Nehemiah and Ezra rebuked them for. Are we still there? If my reading is wrong, 
it's fine. You can apply yours. But mine says, they have married the daughters of foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him from the hands of Jacob, even though he brings things to the Lord Almighty. Which man? The man who has married foreign wives, right? Okay, let's go to verse 13 then. It says, and this is the second thing you do. So you have despised the covenant. You've broken covenant with God. You've broken covenant with one another. You went as far as marrying foreign women. But here's another indictment. Here's another thing you do. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, crying. So he, he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why is God rejecting our sacrifices? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Let's go back to Deuteronomy thinking. And the Bible this time, who's under spotlight this time? A man, right? Now the Bible says, you as a man, you have treacherously with your wife. Now let's zoom into the word treacherously. You have dealt deceitfully with your wife. You have dealt untruthfully, unkindly, badly, unfaith without integrity with your wife. So the wife could have been divorced for uncleanness. But it doesn't seem like man is divorcing this wife for the reason was stipulated, because his reasons are said to be deceitful. Are you there, saints? Yet she's your companion, which means she doesn't, she's not guilty. And she's the wife of covenant. You are not expected to break it, right? That's what I'm saying now of God with his wife or with his nation Israel. But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit. And why is God in this? He says he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, your spirit in Arakuna what you have, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's government with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Did you see how many times the word treasure has been repeated? So, there are a number of interpretations different as therefore from what we've read. The one school of thought would and says this man could not so in other words what they are arguing is that God did not indict God did not judge against divorce he judged against the reason for divorcing Are you following? Remember, I'm not giving you stances. I'm just simply telling you what is being discussed. Remember, this nation has already been told the grounds under which they could divorce. The grounds under which they were to divorce, does it necessarily mean God loves divorce? Not necessarily. But then again, divorce was allowed, at least from their history, on certain grounds. Except that this one particular instance where an argument can be raised is that these people are divorcing these women deceitfully to marry foreign women. That's one view. Another view is they may have dealt with them deceitfully in any other form, like finding what is not necessarily the case. So, for instance, they say there's uncleanness. What uncleanness? They can't prove the case, but they can offer the certificate of divorce. And so here we hear that the Lord hates divorce. So does the Lord hate divorce as a breaking of covenant? Does the Lord hate divorce when divorce is done? Are you still there? So that's the story. That's where we, we are. So we, we go to... So Malachi, it's the... It's really where most of us discuss divorce from, isn't it? But what I wanted us to do is to be aware. Is, was God addressing the context so in other words if god hates divorce god must have hated divorce before deuteronomy 24 i don't know if that makes sense to you if god said you you could divorce under this second it doesn't mean he loved it that is if god hates divorce but then he allowed it. 
Okay, let's go to Matthew 19. This is another one where we, we get our disputations around. When Jesus had finished saying these things, you see where I'm reading. From verse 1, right? He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him, him again. They, these guys, maybe they should call them testers. They asked him, now listen to the question and listen to the phrasing of the question in the light of Deuteronomy 24. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For what? For any and every reason. When you listen to the question, you should be asking yourself, you guys, why are you even asking this question? Why are you phrasing it this way? When in the laws given to you, the, the provisions of divorce are given. Now, I would imagine they were expecting, I don't know, maybe they're expecting Jesus to take them back to those reasons. But... He doesn't necessarily. He points them to the heart behind what was said to them. So they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? Right? He's, he's saying you, 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 you should have read at least that... At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one. From when? Not from Deuteronomy. From the beginning, it was always intended to be living and cleaving. Right? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So let us actually go back to the discussion as it unfolds. When Jesus says, haven't you read that in the beginning, as a Pharisee, as a scholar, is my mind going back to Deuteronomy or to Genesis. Because Jesus quotes Genesis. He doesn't quote Deuteronomy. So their minds must obviously go to Genesis. And it is in Genesis that Jesus makes the reference that from that very point of when marriage is instituted, let no one separate. That's the intention from that point going forward. Are you there? So 
We are having this to and fro discussion with Jesus as the Pharisees. So you say, Jesus, that in the beginning, God never intended for people to divorce. Is that what you're saying? You're saying the, the intention was that they should live together, be united as one flesh, and that none should separate that unit. If that's the case, then why? Because we have proof. It is recorded just as much as you, ask, you are asking us, have you not read? We can also ask you, have you not read? In Deuteronomy, Jesus, have you not read? It says, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They have a point. Because there are scholars who come from a place of having read, but you see, they are crooks at the same time. Because they know that Moses had said you can give your wife a certificate of divorce, right? If they know that, they must also know that it was not for any and, what did they say? Any reason. Any and every. Why are they asking that? They are crooks. Anyway, let's leave them. It says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Eh? Interesting. You, you, look at the, 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 the use of words. Jesus, may, Moses permitted. Moses allowed. If you, you, you have to get permission, if you have to get allowance, look, if something does not have restrictions placed upon it, then we don't need permission to do it. If you understand what I'm saying. I can only attain permission if, if I do these things without permission, I would be breaking the law. So Moses permitted you to do what was not intended. Why? Because your hearts were hard. Let's talk about the hardness of the heart. So, Moses permitted you because your hearts were hard. So, what does it look like when the Bible says the heart, the heart is hard? In, 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 in Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceptive. So, the heart leads to Dealing with people treacherously. Because the heart is 
deceitful. But again, Jesus tells us that a wicked heart, out of the heart comes murderous thoughts, stealing and all kinds of wickedness from the heart. Are you following? Now, from the heart emanates all the things that I said. We are not told what it meant when it says he dealt with the wife treacherously, deceitfully. But we know that the state of the heart itself is deceitful. But not only that, it produces all kinds of wickedness. Let's try and enumerate some of the things. The heart that is not born again is an embodiment or an expression of the nature of the flesh. So, it is lustful, it is full of witchcraft, it's full of all the things that these are the works of the flesh. It is full of chicanery, it's full of cheating, it's full of domestic violence, it's full of all the things that are encapsulated in what we call violent behavior. But that's the heart, isn't it? So he says your hearts were hard. Question. When he says your hearts were hard, does he insinuate that now your hearts are soft? Not to mention that even at that point, he's talking to people who are not born again. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to people who have not been regenerated. He's simply pointing out a fact of what happened then, but that does not abscond them or uh, immunize them from the reality of the current state of their hearts. So question, if their hearts are still hard now, what is then the solution? If people divorced because their hearts were hard and it is apparent that as he speaks to them at that moment, their hearts are still hard. What then? Let's continue on what he says. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I like it. He doesn't say from Deuteronomy. He says from the beginning. And he has already told us which beginning he's referring to. He says, I tell you. Now, this, this is a, a crisis now. Um, it's a crisis because... Jesus is telling them, he's expounding on the knowledge they have, but he's adding a dimension that was not part of that knowledge collection. They knew they could divorce. And they were okay. But now he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality 
and marries another woman, commits what? And you'll hear. Then the, the disciple said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Because remember, in Deuteronomy, they were not told that if you divorce her and marries another, you are committing adultery. Neither were they told that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. That part was not there. And that is why their question had nothing to do with adultery. It had to do with divorce for what? You said what? Any and every reason. But now Jesus says, yeah, on either spectrum of divorcing, without sexual immorality involved. Now you are committing other. You see, now that's another dimension. And that is why, for me, if I was them, I would, I would say, okay, I think it's better not to marry. Are you there? So they say, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given or some are eunuchs because they were born that way. In other words, they were not made. Others were made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. So now, let's get another question from this part of the discussion. From where we come, the people that are being answered, the people that are asking the question, it's not you and me. Right? I want you to be aware that it's not you and me asking Jesus. The people that are asking this question are asking this question from a place of having been allowed to divorce. And now they want to find a justification for any or every reason. And Jesus says, no. But be aware, Jesus does not address the matter of the woman's uncleanness as it was recorded in the law. He simply says sexual immorality. And another version would probably say adultery. But the word that is translated there is properly translated sexual immorality, which means all forms of sexual behavior that deviates from the marriage covenant. Right? I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm asking you because I asked myself, because I want to be able to Understand people who divorce and help those who divorce and, and find a way to be truthfully gracious and graciously truthful. Right? Let's go back to the idea of the covenant again. 
You have dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth, which is your wife by covenant. So Jesus, so now we, we, we started from there. What could have been the divorce grounds in Deuteronomy? Uncleanness. Again? Or you detest her. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It should be only bisexual immorality. Question. In the minds of the people that are listening, is Jesus canceling that one? Or is adding? Jesus says, no, no, no. You must not divorce except for. Are you following? Hold that thought. Then Jesus again has already told us that it is their hearts that are hard. Right? And here's a question I want to ask. He says, if you do, you commit. The word that they translated, they translate to commit adultery or sexual immorality. Here's a question I want you to think about. Does this commission imply an occurrence or a state? So if I commit sin of any sort, right? Let, let's take it literal. If I go and commit adultery, I sleep with another woman outside my own marriage covenant. Is that an occurrence, an event, or is that a state? So, but remember, Jesus has spoken to us about if you look at a woman and you lust after her, that thing falls under sexual immorality. So now I'm married to my beautiful wife and I see this other lady. What's her name? I don't know. But she's somewhere in these movies. So I see her. The Bible says when I think about her in a lustful way, I have already committed adultery with her in my heart. How is this commission of adult a merit? How is it different from the other one? So let's go back to the other one again. Is it an event or a state? Then let's add another question to it. Is it unforgivable before God? Is it unpardonable? Now you must, you must think about these things because when we hold strong views about things, we can go beyond the lines. Let me ask you a question. Jesus says, if anyone blasphemes against the Father or the Son, he will be forgiven. But if anyone 
blasphemes against the Spirit. He will not be forgiven in this life and in the life to come. Let's go back. Is adultery an unforgivable sin? I'm not... Remember, I'm just asking questions. I'm just saying, let's end from a piece of... This is what I think. Are you there? So, we have death, we have adultery or sexual immorality, and if you are still in uh, the mosaic law, we can also include uncleanness and detest, right? So now let's, let's go to Romans chapter 7. Remember, tonight we are just reading. We're not necessarily debating issues. We are just allowing ourselves to understand for ourselves what is the situation with the Bible and divorce. So in Romans chapter 7, I'm reading from verse 1, it says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of what? From the law of the husband, from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. And then I ask again, is this a state or an event? I'm not answering, I'm just asking the questions. It says, here's what you need to do. I agree you all have a Bible, what do you call the U version or any other Bible? Go and compare the verses. You know, go and check. How is this verse phrased in other versions? You know, it might help you. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So we deal with termination again and remarriage. Right? Okay. Let's go to First Corinthians. These are all the verses we know. Ah. <sighs> Let's start it from verse 8. Chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Are you still okay? Is the stamina still there? Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves... 
they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That, that verse is, is problematic. And problematic in a sense that it says, when a person bends with passion, when they are afflicted by bodily desires and lust, they must do what? Marry. Why should they marry? I presume so that they do not sin. Right? So they marry and for some reason their spouse becomes incapacitated in a manner that their bodily passions cannot remember they married because they were burning. And then they, the wife is in the hospital or the husband is in the hospital, whatever the case may be. They're in a coma or in a stupor for eight months. Remember, I'm just asking questions. I'm raising ethical stuff that happens in the light of the verses that we read. I'm sure you hear what question I'm going to ask, so I'll just leave it and continue reading. It says, remember earlier on, he had already said they must not deprive each other except for prayer, to devote themselves to prayer, and they must be in agreement. But after that, he says they must be, okay, let me read it so that we, 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 we remember. It says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Doesn't that sound the hardness of heart as well? Just because of your lack of self-control, you're going to run into some kind of, but I like it. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Right? Then we, we jump to the plan we were on. It says, verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. What do your versions say on that part? Where it says a wife must not. Does your, does your Bible also start with a wife? Isn't it interesting that in this context... All this time, we're reading more of the husband kind of being the one deciding. 
But in this case, we are given an indication that their wife also seemingly has a right. If it says she must not separate, it means she can. Are you there? Where am I reading? Thank you. Not that I see my Bible very well. But if she does, then that one must, it settles the matter, right? That the wife can live too. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband must not divorce his wife. Are you still there, sir? To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and is willing to live her with her, she must not divorce him. So now it is established that either party can actually divorce. Not as a conclusion to our discussion, but as an option to whatever merits warrant it. Right? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean. But as it is, it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, so in this case, an unbeliever can be either gender. Let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your... So we have read different grounds. Ne? In this case, we are told that an unbelieving what do you think unbelieving means? It means something, but it also represents something. It means someone who has not accepted the Lord in this context. But what does it imply? What can you expect of a person who has not accepted the Lord? Many things, because in this case, they can also be good. So let's not go to, let's not be quick to go to the furthest of. But it, by implications, means you may not necessarily agree on godly values that you are going to adhere to. Right? It may also mean, unfortunately, that's not an exclusivity to what it, to whom it would apply. It could mean someone who may not necessarily be gentle and so on and so forth. But that's not exclusively to people who are not born again. 
is a matter of fact, others are more gentle than those who are born again. Right? Go and ask, ask our wives. They'll tell you sometimes that maybe I would have been better married to Mr. Ibu. <laughs> you know? So, the point is, now you see people who do not necessarily share the same faith and belief system. The Bible says you cannot just on a whim divorce such a person. But such a person can also walk away. Right? Let me ask you another question. So when the Bible says I must not divorce this person, does that mean I must live with who and what this person is? And so there are proponents of things I do not necessarily believe in, but they are willing to live with me. Now, I'm not asking, I don't expect answers per se. I'm just telling you, the Bible says, if you marry an unbeliever, you are married to one. Do not divorce them. And because they are unbelievers, the Bible has not said when they do what or not do what. By the fact of the state of being an unbeliever, it is inherent to being an unbeliever that they are going to do things that offend you as a believer. But still, you are told to not divorce them. They are willing. They get drunk, they fight you, they swear, but they are willing. Let's go back to the idea of the hardness of hearts and maybe leave the rest for tomorrow. There are things that on the basis of their ethics and merits we have debated them and we will continue to debate them. But as we debate them, we must ask ourselves what do they imply in practice? A case in point is what I want to raise. The hardness of a heart. May I ask you a question? It's cruelty an outcome of a, a hard heart. Because Jesus says, the Bible says, I will give you a gentle heart. He says, rejoice always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Right? So, is cruelty a sign of a hard heart? Is abuse a sign of a hard heart. So where do we put all these ethical dilemmas? In the context of whether people should live with those things in marriage or they shouldn't. Remember, we asked a question. When Jesus said, because your hearts were hard, 
did it imply they are now soft? Can we today say our hearts are totally gentle? So, I don't want us to go until nine as intended. Tomorrow we'll, we'll delve into then why do people actually divorce? Have you ever had someone acknowledge that? Ah, uh, we are divorcing because our hearts are hard. Eh? Mariluna, you are saying people's hearts even today. Okay, let's not talk about people because they are not here. You are saying your heart is hard in some instances. Are you, are you saying, are you acknowledging that your heart is Don't talk for me. I'm only saying, have you ever heard people divorcing and saying, because our hearts are hard? When we hear cases of divorce, and when we deal with cases of divorce, in most, if not all, Remember we said all relationships break where characters fail. Characters are the manifestations of the state of our hearts. Isn't it that we say, hey, that one has a good heart. Right? And why do they have a good heart? Because we see their gentleness, their kindness. We see the attributes of a spirit-reformed individual. And we say that person has a good heart. And then we see another one. We say that one has a wicked heart. But what is wickedness? Wickedness is anything that in nature contradicts or compromises and usurps in us the nature of God in us. So wickedness is behaving contrary to the nature of Christ, in short. It's behaving against what we read. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. What is the next one? Love your neighbor. Are you there? So wickedness is expressed when we contradict God and when we ill-treat Men. And that, that, that doesn't matter which one is it. So in a sense, therefore, when our hearts are hard, divorce is inevitable. And whether we can debate as of tomorrow whether it's allowed or not, How do you know 
Have you seen how other people, one spouse can be willing to reconcile or go to counseling or you've never dealt with divorce, right? The other one, There's always a level of pride and arrogance and self-justification and all the things that in themselves prove that our hearts are deceitful. But there's also real pain. You understand? So these things pose an ethical and a moral dilemma. I want to be good. I receive no good. My good produces the worst in the next person. What do I do? I am good as best as I can, except that my good endangers my life. And the lives of my children or whatever the case may be. I am a patient woman or patient man of the fruit of the spirit, but I've already been chased twice with an axe and missed thrice with bullets. Can my heart, my soft heart, can it withstand the hardness of the next person's heart? Are you there, say? So, I just want us to pray so that tomorrow when we get into the issues and when you debate and when you develop opinions, you are aware that you are dealing with other people's pain, but you are also dealing with God's pain about his children or his people. Also, I would request that go and think about these verses. If I'm married to an unbeliever who's willing but is unwilling to let me serve God, what do I do? They are willing to stay, but they're not willing to let me be a child of God. Where to? So let's stand up and pray and ask ourselves, are these other moral and ethical dilemmas grounds for divorce? And then from tomorrow, we can forge a way forward to saying, so when people are divorcing, what should we do? What is our response as a church? What should they be thinking? What should they expect? Amen. Tomorrow we'll talk about the why as it unfolds, not as the Bible has told us the reasons. So let's pray for healing. Let's pray for understanding. And then we can engage as of tomorrow. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, 
it is really in our hearts to see reconciliations, to see restorations, to see the miracle of forgiveness happening in marriages. At the same time, it has been our reality that sometimes people may not reconcile People may struggle to forgive. People may go through paths that are very hard for outsiders to comprehend. And that they, there's a longing in others' hearts to save marriages, whilst in others' hearts, there is a, a desire and a desperation to be set free, to follow their own ambitions and lustful pursuits. But in all these things, Lord, we are not different from them. We are not different from those who have gone through divorce, who are considering it and those that are going through it. We, found, we find ourselves at the place of grace where you are keeping us. We have also gone through those muddy places, Lord, and sinking sands. We've navigated those rocky and treacherous places where marriages were threatened and continue to be threatened, where peace was lost in the family, where tensions were running high. Therefore, we cannot stand on a pedestal to judge others. We can only pray that the grace that has kept us will restore them. It will keep those that are on rocky places and that for those that are not yet married, your grace will teach them to say no and to say yes where it is appropriate, Lord. Teach us your heart this week, your heart for marriage, and your heart for those that, whose marriages have failed. And teach us to be a community that is graciously truthful and truthfully gracious, Lord. Give us discernment on the merit of each case as we deal with it, Lord. And help us ever to be on her high horse. But for those who consider themselves standing, may they remember that it is by grace and that none is immune from falling in this case. Therefore, those that are standing, may they be careful not to fall into the same situation. We pray for grace, Lord. We pray for understanding we pray 
even for acceptance, even where they, there's been rebellion and unrepentance, Lord. We pray that even the Holy Spirit permeate the hearts of your people, where hearts continue to be hard. Only you can soften our deceitful, hard hearts. We pray for mercy. We pray for grace. We pray for reconciliation, for forgiveness and restoration, wherever possible. For all things are possible to him who believes. Nothing is impossible with you, O God. Commit all the marriages, the intending to marry, and those that are underway with the processes of getting married. May your grace rest upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Saints, thank you for coming in today. And for those who have tuned in, thank you. We will see one another tomorrow at 7 again.